Is this thing on? Okay. Hey guys. Welcome to Voice Hello. Podcast, a podcast for students by students. My name is Ellie Steele. I'm one of your hosts, and I'm joined by two gentlemen today. You want to introduce yourselves, guys? Yeah. My name is Jason Bobia. Uh, I'm a professor as well as the coordinator of the Social Service Worker Program on the Kingston campus of St. Lawrence College. Thank you. I'm her. So, toasts. And I'm a second year uh, business administration accounting student who has a bit of the best interest in his BI pro uh, basic instrument um, guarantee project. So no cool. you today. Right. So that's why we're here. We're here to talk about uh, basic income guarantees. And Jason is, is, you know, the master of this in my world. So uh, I started learning about this stuff from you last semester or last year, I guess, last fall in social welfare That's in the right. social service yep. worker program and yep. um, we had some good guests come in and, and talk about universal basic income basic income guarantee why don't we just start by kind of defining that like there's these terms about basic income and universal income kind of what is it maybe um and if you can help people understand the difference in those terms how about that sure so you know, there is, there's a lot of different ways that people have used to describe this, and sometimes it's different approaches, but it's all getting at the same thing. And that is essentially rising people out of poverty by giving them money. Um, you know, right now with, with poverty rates uh, in whatever country you happen to be focusing on, of course, we always look at Canada, uh, we have a tendency to want to provide services to people, or we want to provide, um, you know, uh, talks to tell them to pull themselves up by their bootstraps or get a job. Uh, all of these things aimed at, at, at getting rid of poverty, but in actual fact, the only way you really give people, you know, get people out of poverty, which is not having money, is to give them money. So all of these programs really aim at providing money to people once your income drops below a certain amount uh, that would put you into a, a recognized and kind of uh, universally considered poverty line uh, that would then top you up above that um, so that you will be able to continue to have money to pay your bills to buy food uh, just to continue to live life as opposed to having to try and stretch to make ends meet look towards other minimum income programs uh, or just simply go without so right now we're hearing a lot about a recovery universal basic income mm -hmm. after COVID. Um, and how would that be different from a basic income guarantee that people have been kind of fighting for and advocating for for a number of years? There's a, there's a difference here, right? There is. And so, you know, there, there's probably, if you want to look at it, there's probably about 12 or 15 different ways one can provide this type of service. Uh, Usually, though, across the, the world, we see it provided in, in, in two main ways. Uh, and one is considered the universal basic income, which is just provided to absolutely everybody, uh, whether it's done in quarterly payments and, you know, semi-annual payments. Uh, it's provided to the entire population, and then it's taxed back. So if your income is over a certain threshold, uh, your taxes are, are higher, to tax back the amount that you were given. And the thought behind that is to lower stigmatization. So if absolutely the entire population is receiving the same thing, there's no stigma in accepting it. And that makes sense. Now the downfall of that that way is that it is incredibly expensive because you are providing this to an entire population. You're then having to 
employ all of these people to look at taxes, bringing all of these things back, doing all the audits. Um, but it is the main way of not having a stigmatized population uh, of receiving that type of service. In Canada, the way that we're, the approach that we're mostly looking at, and, and some groups will uh, advocate for that approach, but we're looking more at a negative income tax. So, you know, um, I know, Ellie, I'm sure you don't mind to say, but you're a working girl. Uh, so you get a paycheck as you're going to school as well and having to balance those two things. And the first thing we notice as we open our paychecks is that the government has taken a solid chunk out of our checks in, in taxes. And a negative income tax is kind of the opposite of that, is that when your income drops below a threshold, instead of having taxes taken out, you have taxes given to you. Or if you don't have an income, you just get check that would essentially be taxes uh, in, in the form of uh, a check that's coming again, whether it's monthly, whether it's it's quarterly, however it is, we want to figure that out. Um, so below a certain income level, you would receive taxes, quote unquote. Above a certain income level, you would pay taxes, uh, and it could it could change throughout the year as well. Um, so you know it might be around Christmas where you might get laid off for maybe two or three months. Uh, your income level drops, so you end up getting supplemented. But maybe through the summer, uh, you know, you might be a landscaper or something, business is booming. Uh, so you're going to be paying uh, taxes and at a much higher level during then because your income goes way up. Uh, it allows for fluctuation throughout the year. Okay. And a question, in that kind of system, would are, is there a standardized way people would like to go about that? Like go by monthly, quarterly? Would there be any kind of smoothing effects where you could almost like, if you were working in the summer and you know you're gonna be making more money, could you almost be like banking money so that you're protected later? You, depending on how it ends up being actually implemented, you may end up having to do that. Though yeah. there are many countries where they've introduced a negative income tax and often it can be based on your previous year's uh, income. Okay. Now that can be problematic obviously as well because it's not going to be current, right? Uh, and if you get nothing else from our talk today, it's that none of these systems are perfect, um, but every one of them combats poverty at a higher level than what we're doing currently, uh, you know, which is nothing. Um, so, you know, whether you're, uh, you know, using costs to employ higher amounts of people, whether employees then have a greater emphasis to be reporting this to a centralized kind of bank, uh, you know, not unlike the CRA, which can then top people up, whether it's a month behind, two months behind, to make it a little more current, um, you know, is probably a better way of looking at it. I think in Canada, we have the technology to be able to do that. Um, I also think that there, you know, CERB has kind of set uh, a new benchmark for us as well uh, of looking at, well, you know, can we decide that we're going to overall trust our population to self-report? Uh, and if you end up self-reporting incorrectly, well, there's going to be a penalty to that. It's, it might take a bit of time to catch up, but it will end up uh, catching up to you eventually. Uh, and, and I think CERB has shown that we as a population, at least during times of severe crisis, are willing to do that. Cool. Uh, and I, I honestly think you could argue with uh, the rise in automation and with these pandemics and all these things happening, we're kind of in a current state of upheaval and uh, crisis mm -hmm. mode these days. So 
do you think you could use the the style of serve as a bit of a framework? And, and as a kind of side on question, with some of these programs, would it be possible to basically have work programs to help work towards public infrastructure projects where you are enlisting the help of people that are getting these payments to help build your workforce in other other areas that are underserved? Possibly. Uh, and again, you might have opportunities that are being provided to people that would come through employment areas such yeah. as this. Uh, then again, uh, you know, you, you got to be careful walking that line as well, because what we don't want to get into is anything that might give the appearance of something like uh, the infamous uh, workfare uh, approach where Ontario Works was provided. But of course, in response, you had to go and volunteer your time for a set period of time. So, you know, I, I, but I think that there's options and opportunities that we can certainly look at there. Uh, and I think that once this whole kind of pandemic thing hopefully has, has passed uh, and we kind of look back, I think it'll be interesting to see from the CERB um, what kind of came from that as far as payments to people who quote unquote took advantage of the system. And because that is always one of the big arguments, right? Is that, well, if you provide this, people are just simply going to sit back uh, and do nothing and just take advantage of the system and have money roll in. And as nice as I'm sure and helpful as the CERB was for many people at $2,000 a month, and Ellie, you might remember this from social welfare, I always ask everybody every year is that if you were to get, let's say $2,000 a month, how many of you would drop out of class right now uh, and just go home and spend you know the rest of your life bringing in two thousand dollars a month. And the reality is, every year there's always one person who reluctantly puts up their hand. Uh, and there's probably more than one person who that might happen, at least in the short term. But that's probably true of any current income program that we're running as well. Um, the reality is, is that are you ever going to have 100% of people who are dedicated to using it in the exact way it's intended? Of course you're not. But should that half or third of a percent end up dictating for the other 99 and two thirds what supports are available? Yeah. It, you know, it's a hard argument to make, I think. So that brings up an important point. Like you talked about the the, I guess the downsides or the arguments against a basic income um let's talk specifically if we can about the benefits like what, mm -hmm. what would that look like for canada yeah. if, if people had that safety net and you know the interesting thing is is that we don't even have to talk too you know kind of figuratively or imaginatively about what those benefits would be um we to a certain extent know what those benefits are uh, Canada has a history of test driving uh, basic incomes, uh, you know, kind of across uh, the country, as well as so do our neighbors to the south, uh, and so does many European countries, uh, many of whom have gone on to adopt them for longer term approaches and are still offering them now. So we know that one of the biggest benefits that comes from this uh, is a decreased cost in healthcare. Um, hmm. Because, you know, while we can look at study after study and name drop name after name, it's not hard to understand why people living in poverty uh, end up having worse health outcomes. Uh, when you don't have money to eat well, well, you're all of a sudden now you're not feeling so good. You're not getting enough calories. You're not getting enough vitamins. Um, when people aren't uh, having enough money to be able to have adequate housing, 
what happens now, you're in housing with mold or with vermin or that's cold or you're not paying your bills to be able to have the heat on or air conditioning. And all of these things, and that's just a couple of examples, there's, there's far more that could be given, uh, are running up our, our healthcare dollars just simply from people living in poverty. Uh, and, and so we know the benefits are going to be a reduction in healthcare costs, better health outcomes uh, for our population. When you have children that are being bought up in poverty, um, of course, we know that their likelihood of finishing high school and going on to college and university takes a severe drop as well. Uh, particularly if this has been a cycle of poverty as often occurs and parents haven't been to college or university, um, first gen students uh, is something that we don't see a lot of in college and university, which is why they're often provided with additional supports. So we know that the, their ability to get a job without a high school diploma, even with a high school diploma, but no college or university drops significantly. Uh, so now they're also, not only are they not um, you know, able to go on and get jobs and stuff that they want, they're not providing that income through taxes and everything to be contributing members to society. Crime goes up. Uh, again, Ellie, I'm sure you remember our conversations in class uh, that sticks out to people often about black market cheese. Um, when, you know, it comes to when you start seeing what people are being arrested for and convicted of, uh, and when you start seeing people are being arrested for stealing groceries out of a, you know, out of a grocery store, nobody is going down to the corner and selling cheese on the black market. If you're stealing food, it's because you're hungry. Uh, and you have no place else to get food from. And so as a result of that, what are we paying in incarceration, you know, upwards of $100,000 a year per person. So we end up having crime go down in areas where we can eradicate poverty. And so just point after point, we, we see just numerous benefits by bringing a population out of poverty. Uh, and again, we've tried so many different ways of doing this over the years. But the reality is it, it really works out to being quite simple. The only solution to people not having money is to give them money. Uh, that is the only way we're going to end up fighting poverty and a basic income guarantee has been proven uh, to drastically reduce all of those things. Yeah, and uh, you talked, you brought across a wide range of social systems and things that could be affected by this influx of money, but a lot of my reading has shown over the years that it's always better to treat the root cause than the effect, right? So mm. every dollar you can spend on developing inner city schools or helping reinvigorate uh, struggling economic cores is only going to repay you tenfold in the future, especially when you're dealing with people like first-gen students where Canada has a declining bell curve population, right? Mm -hmm. So we're actively trying to bring in immigration. But if you're not then going to support these people, support these people that we're having as our new citizens, our new neighbors, our new friends, then what's even the point of the whole process? And Absolutely. I don't know. I, yeah. No, you're absolutely right. There are times when uh, things look really good on paper, but until you actually then sit down and are willing to put some money behind it, you're not going to see the actual uh, outcomes that are desired. But since outcomes are often down the road, uh, it's not the immediacy that we're looking for anyway. You know, currently a lot, you know, all of our social policies uh, are dictated by governments. 
And governments are often not taking a long-term approach to things because they know that in the best case scenario of a majority government, you might get three or four years out of it. Uh, and out of a minority government, you know, your time could be up tomorrow. Uh, and so, you know, there's lots of promises made, lots of new things started, but then with a, a shift in government uh, comes a shift in social policy. Uh, and no more so have we seen that effect as great as our most recent provincial election here in Ontario. Um, where, you know, wh wh whether you support uh, Doug Ford or whether you don't, that is someone who in the first 90 days of taking office did exactly what he said he would do. Uh, and things became radically different uh, in a lot of areas, but that included social services. And one of the things he did was to cancel an exper experiment in basic income, right? That's right. And so it had taken a long, long time uh, to be able to convict uh, a government, a federal government, to put money behind running a basic income pilot. Uh, and so eventually the Liberal government uh, was willing to put forth uh, some money in Ontario uh, to actually study based off a report uh, from Senator Hugh Siegel, who of all people was a conservative senator, uh, but recognized uh, the importance of a basic income and how it actually can end up paying for itself. Uh, but unfortunately, yeah, with the change in government came the cancellation of that program. Uh, I think they actually got about a year's worth of payments, but the cancellation yeah. came 10 months in. Uh, and, and so, you know, while some anecdotal things uh, have been kind of garnered from, from that pilot, um, the reality is we'll never fully know its benefits uh, because, you know, it was one that was designed to set out to assess health outcomes of people uh, who are now being provided this. And it's one of the only basic incomes that really sh uh, sought to study health outcomes. Most of them had other main areas and health outcomes were kind of a side effect of it. Yeah, it was, it, as you said, it was a short term one, but I from a report I was reading earlier, I think half the reports, uh, subjects reported decreased use of alcohol and tobacco, 80% mm -hmm. reported better physical and mental well-being, and over half the subjects actually went back to school for reskilling mm -hmm. or upskilling, which, especially with the rapidly advancing age that we're living in, where I think nowadays, most people in my generation, we're expecting to have two or three different careers over the course of our lives. Something like this, like a, a basic income guarantee, it would give us the ability to go back to school without having to basically put our entire lives on hold and then also increase our continued uh, employability and the upskilling of Canada as a whole. I, there really are a lot of positive benefits potentially. Absolutely. That's a good point too. So Jason, can you talk to that a little bit? Like, so specifically benefits for students mm -hmm. in this population. I mean, a lot of the benefits we've talked about obviously apply to sure universally to everyone, but are anything specific that you would say to the student body that this it's important to consider or understand the benefits for that population? We just in the SSW program, although I bet this is probably uh, would be would apply right across college and university right across the country. Uh, every year have looked at the amount of our students who again are self reporting uh, working hours that are essentially almost full time while going to school. And every year that I've been with the program, I've been with the program just over 10 years now, that number has gone up and up and up uh, to, you know, we're well over 50% of students are saying, I am working almost, you know, between 30 and 40 hours a week while attending school full time. The likelihood is that nobody is doing that because they want to. 
Um, <laughs> that, that means you're putting in 12, 16 hour days, uh, plus your weekends, um, which means something in, yeah, Ellie, you, you know better than anyone. And that means something in your life is suffering for that time. Um, and so it might be school, it might be uh, your family relationships, it might be your friend relationships, it might be your health, uh, whether that's physical, whether that's mental, something's got to give. Uh, and so any one of those things would be a detriment, but you know, oftentimes with students, it's multiples of those things. And so imagine if students didn't have to work full time or maybe even at all while they were going to school. Imagine the difference in their lives that would make. Imagine the time they would have for homework. Uh, imagine the time for studying. Uh, imagine the time for self-care. Uh, just to be able to take time in your day uh, and again, take more time in your week uh, to do something that provides you with the ability to relax and decompress uh, and socialize. And so just that is an ongoing aspect. But then you'd also take a look at just the crippling debt that people are graduating with these days. And it's not uncommon that, you know, students are coming out of two-year diplomas, three-year diplomas, four-year degrees um, with anywhere between thirty and $70,000 worth of debt. And now you're coming out uh, of this and you have this debt from OSAP uh, because you needed it to be able to pay your bills while you were going to school. And now you come out, uh, you're ready to work. Uh, and as we briefly touched on earlier, you know, we, we are right in the middle of a gig economy, uh, which means that now you're needing to work two or three jobs just to be able to bring in that steady full-time income. And where's a large chunk of it going to? That $70,000 debt that you just yeah. jacked up uh, over the course of the last three or four years. And how long does that now take you to pay off? And instead of doing things like saving up a down payment for a house, um, maybe having children, having a family, uh, all of these things that we consider to be normal middle class type um, things of people to live, they're gone for people right now. It's not possible, it's not attainable for most people fresh out of college and university um, to be putting a down payment on a house within five years because you're still paying off that education that you had for many people well into their 30s, if not into their 40s. Uh, and it's made a big impact on our middle class disappearing. And you know, there's a lot of other things that impacted it more than that, believe me. But it's one part of it as well, is that now you're working for the next 10 to 15 years to pay the very, you know, the government who could have provided you with a basic income guarantee, back the money they instead lent you uh, to be able to go to college and has now had to put all these other aspects of what could have been, uh, you know, some of the best parts of your life on hold until we can pay that back. Imagine if you didn't have that over your head. Um, these are the, you know, some of the real benefits that it, it's not just about, uh, we often think of it's just about people living in poverty. Um, it's not. Uh, it's about students. It's about people who are working. Uh, one of the things that was interesting with the pilot project, the most recent one that was canceled uh, in, in Ontario, is that 70% of the people that were chosen for that pilot project were not on income programs. They were working. 
so they weren't on Ontario Works or Ontario Disability, which is often what we think is that, oh, okay, well, we're just shifting one income support for another. These were people that were working, uh, but they were still living below the poverty line, which is not uncommon. Right. Yeah. And it's one, one of those things, too, where I think it would provide a lot of use to people that are maybe they went into careers for the potential financial impacts, and then mm -hmm. they're almost miscast or they're, they're working in an area where they're not really providing their best value. So there's always, right. I always thought there's a possibility that by providing like this, you can actually almost allow people to kind of like play a game of musical chairs and end up where they want to be and where they're they're going to do the best for society, and that has a massive intangible impact potential. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, you end up into something that, uh, you know, for whatever reason, there's still a lot of pressure being put on people coming out of high school to go right into college and university. Uh, in in Personally, I don't agree with it. I think the best thing a lot of students can do is take a year or two years. You know, I, I took probably upwards of seven years between uh, high school and when I ever uh, went back to St. Lawrence College. Um, but there's all this pressure between parents and between guidance counselors. And so just to the point that, that, that you had just made, Brian, is that people end up choosing programs that maybe is not the best fit for them. And they find this out the hard way. But at the same time, they already jacked up $20,000 in debt doing this. So now do I start something new and go $40,000 in debt? Or do I just decide, okay, well, you know what? This isn't ideal. This isn't my best effort, but I'll just plug away at this for a little while. And this is what people end up doing. Uh, and it's, you know, it's not giving their best effort. It's not providing them with as uh, high a quality of life uh, in mental health that it could be. Um, but again, from a society standpoint, we're not utilizing them in the best way that we could. And we all end up losing from that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So let's talk about going forward here. There are some proposals. There are some things we can do. What's happening as far as government's interest in universal basic income right now and and what what would you recommend people do if they want to learn more if they want to get involved if if they want to start uh, supporting it mm -hmm. you know right now i have never in my lifetime heard so much talk about uh universal basic income which is great because for a long time um the only talk you heard about it was well we can't do that we can't do that uh, and now, you know, or then slowly it became an NDP thing. Uh, and it was like, oh yeah, the NDPs want that, but they'll never be in power. It'll never happen. Um, and then when Hugh Siegel came out as being part of a conservative party and supported it, that was kind of crossing lines that was unexpected. Uh, and then when provincial liberals started backing it, uh, but federal liberals wouldn't touch it. Um, but you know, provincially, they said, okay, we can start to take a look at this. Well, now again, we were into COVID, uh, and now the federal liberals are starting to say, hey, you know, this is something we might want to take a look at. Uh, and they are. They're looking at this a lot more closely come their November caucus, uh, which is great that COVID has brought us to this. But the two things that I, I hope is that one, we're able to move quickly on something. Um, and I'm not sure that we can. And the reason why I'm not sure that we can is that we have a minority federal government uh, who I believe might be on borrowed time. Uh, yeah, and the reason, yeah, and so yeah, I, I think we all know that uh, 
you know, once the pandemic has passed, I think we're looking at a federal election. Yep. Um, and so right now, they're not going to be able, as much as we might want them to, to implement any type of a guaranteed annual income. Mm -hmm. But it's great that it's ta being talked about, and it's great that it's on the table. Now, I say I think we need to work move fast on it is because history has shown we don't have long memories. And, you know, you look back in history of when was the last time there was probably this much talk uh, about providing elevated levels of service to get people out of poverty. Uh, and it was after the Great Depression. Um, and after the Great Depression, we realized, oh, wow, this could impact anybody. We need to do something about that. Uh, and that's what led to the influx uh, of a lot of the social programs that we saw that went through the 50s, 60s, and the 70s. But eventually, I, we kind of lost sight uh, of the pain that was felt during that time. And since that time, what have we done? We've cut everything back again. Um, any talk of a universal basic income, and specifically at that time, a national childcare plan, just got wiped right off the table. And I fear that COVID is going to have the same impact once it's over. Uh, is that for a little while, we'll remember what that was like and we'll remember back to me or someone I knew or it very well could have but will we remember that four or five years down the road I don't know I'm, I'm thinking that maybe because we had a 2008 recession and then honestly who knows how long the one that's going to be caused by COVID is going to be like there's some projections that we're going to be sitting in the footprint of this of this upcoming slash current economic depression for five, six years before we actually reach pre-COVID levels. So if there's any upside to that, maybe that is that we are existing in a recessive period for a long time that policies are actually able to be instituted and they give a, uh, an aspect of object permanence for us, hopefully, anyways. That's a good point. Yeah, it is. Silver yeah. lining, there you go. She's <laughs> <laughs> alive, hey, what can you do, right? Find something. That's right, yeah. Okay, so I have two resources where people can go look, and I don't know if you guys have any other ones, but um, ubiworks.ca, um, so you can just, and they have a recovery plan, you can go and have a look, and they actually outline how they would recommend paying for it as well, because that's a oh, cool. yeah. question, yeah. right, like how are we going to pay for this? It is, you know, so much of it often comes down to, well, you know, yeah, well, you can't do that, it's going to cost money, um, you know, you take a look at almost any uh, realistic evidence-based study that's gone into this, it'll pay for itself. Right. Yeah. yeah, that's, and that's cool. I think people really need to understand that, that it would pay mm -hmm. for itself and it doesn't end up um, increasing our income tax, right? No. Not necessarily. Um, and then the other resource was uh, basicincomecanada.org. Mm -hmm. So people yep. can go have a look at those, get involved, volunteer if they want to. Absolutely. There's places yep. you can sign petitions and write to MPPs and that sort of thing. Is that the kind of action you would recommend people take or is there anything else? Yeah, well, of course, first and foremost, I always recommend that people need to become informed uh, on the political issues and you need to vote. And mm -hmm. outside of just you personally voting, you need to rile up your friends to vote as well. Because a lot of the times when we hear about these programs, uh, like guaranteed annual income, these are being supported by parties that oftentimes have a lot of their support from a younger demographic. And yet the majority of, uh, of our voting demographic, whether provincially or federally, is 50 and up. 
So we need to shift that average voter age down and we need uh, you know, students especially to see the impact this has on them and the impact they can have on deciding social policies just through their vote on who's running government. So of course, first and foremost, always get out, vote, look into the issues, get the people around you to vote. After that, absolutely start contacting and putting pressure on your MP and your MPP. Uh, let them know this is an important issue to you. They represent you. Uh, I guarantee this isn't the first time they will have heard this from anyone in your area. Um, find out what is what is their take on it. Do they believe in it, uh, even outside of their party, whether their party does or doesn't? And what actions are they willing to take uh, to start this ball rolling? Yeah, that's good. Go ahead, Brian. No, no, no. That's awesome. That's a really good way to go about it. Bringing out the vote is going to be very important going forward in the next couple of years as we try to recover from this, so. Yeah. It is, you know, you even take a look at something like our last provincial election, and again, love them or hate them, uh, Doug Ford has a majority government with less than one third of the province uh, that voted for him. So, you know, voter turnout in Canada is not high and we need a higher amounts of democratic engagement to make sure the people representing us are actually representing the biggest cross section of our population. And I don't think that's been happening uh, well for a long time. Yeah. Also, election reform of some sort, but that's an entire. Yeah, that's a whole ball. <laughs> we, maybe we'll do a, a podcast on that down the road at some point. But that's, absolutely, that's, I could do three hours on election reform. Oh God. We could easily fill some time on that one for sure. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I think we should wrap that up then. Thank you so much, Jason, for your expertise and your time. Hey, thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Brian, for what you brought to yeah. the conversation, too. Thanks so, for having me on. I was glad yeah. great talking with you, Jason. Anyone hey, that you. wants Good to follow um, SA Voice Podcast, you can do so on the YouTube Voice Podcast channel, Instagram at SA Voice Podcast, and we're on SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, all the good places. So until next time, see you later. Bye.